Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It is October the 13th. It's morning in Berkeley, California, uh, lunchtime in Tennessee. And uh, it's uh, not much more the way. I think it's exactly three weeks until the election, an election which many people on this show have suggested will result in the breakup of America. Uh, David French is the author of an important new book, Divided We Fall, which does indeed, if not predict the breakup of America, warn of it. Let me, before I bring David in, uh, read the first page of the book, this really quite dire warning. It's under the title, A House Divided. Uh, David writes, it's time for Americans to wake up to a fundamental reality. The continued unity of the United States cannot be guaranteed. At this moment in history, there is not a single important cultural, religious, political, or social force that is pulling Americans together more than it is pushing us apart. We cannot assume that a continent-sized, multi-ethnic, multi-faith democracy can remain united forever. And it will not remain united if our political class cannot and will not adapt to an increasingly diverse and divided America. We lack a a common popular culture. We increasingly live separate from one another. We increasingly loathe our political opponents. David, are things that bad? Is America about to fragment this historic experiment in representative democracy? Some people say the first and leading democracy in the world. Is it about to break apart? I think about to is a bit strong. I think that what I'm, the book intends to do is to warn Americans that if we keep doing what we're doing, if we keep pursuing the path that, that we're pursuing, this is a logical endpoint. Uh, um, we're living in increasingly clustered uh, enclaves of like-minded Americans. Those enclaves are uh, have uh, an increasing animosity for political opponents. We consume different levels of pop culture. Uh, We're creating these vast, geographically homogenous, culturally homogenous enclaves that really see the opposing uh, political strain as not just uh, an opponent often, but sometimes actively an enemy. And this this cannot continue at this pace, at this rate, without putting unacceptable strains on the system. And you know, one of the things when I when I wrote this book and I finished it and before it came in the time between I, I finished the book and now uh, there was a George Floyd killing in Minneapolis, which triggered a wave, a spasm of outrage, which has led to a wave of political violence. Some of it coming from the right uh, in, in uh, for example, the uh, the foiled kidnapping plot against Governor Whitmer of Michigan, some of it coming from the left that has increased all of these tensions at the same time that we're entering into an election where there's a very real possibility of a constitutional crisis if the vote count is disputed. 
So all of these trends are coming together to increase animosity, to increase division, to do it along geographic lines. And my argument is quite simple. That's just dangerous for the continued health and existence of a constitutional republic. David, you're not alone in in, in imagining, in fantasizing uh, this this breakup. Lots of people have imagined a new map of America, a balkanized America. Your book talks about America, uh, California splitting off, uh, Texas splitting off, all sorts of uh, scenarios. Uh, and what seems to me the paradox of, of American culture is if you drive around the country, I just drove from uh California to Pennsylvania I took my daughter to college uh and the country looks the same it doesn't matter whether you're in California or Pennsylvania or or South Dakota uh the same stores the same roads the same motels um but when you look more carefully things have fundamentally changed is America uh built on this illusion or delusion of cultural unity Yeah, we do have a sort of a superficial cultural uniformity. Uh, I didn't drive from coast to almost coast like you did, but I just recently drove from Nashville to uh, Leadville, Colorado, west of Denver. And you're exactly right. You go down the interstate and it's Hampton Inn, McDonald's, Hampton Inn, (laughs) McDonald's is as far as you cross the country. And it it gives this feeling of that, hey, look at this, this immense common culture. But you scratch the surface a little bit and you realize on the things that are really and truly meaningful to people, the divisions are great and growing. Let's take, for example, uh, American secularization. A lot of people have noted accurately that the number of people in the U.S. who identify with no particular religion is growing pretty dramatically. At the same time, the most committed cohort of Americans, most religiously committed, is either staying pretty static or also growing in absolute numbers, if not percentage of the American population. And they're clustering in the, in different communities. So not every American community is secularizing at the same pace. So if you live like where I live in Tennessee, the idea that America was getting more secular would be very strange to you because there's a mega church, it feels like, on every street corner. But when I lived in Ithaca, New York, or Cambridge, Massachusetts, or in in Manhattan, places I've lived, this phenomenon of like a huge church everywhere, (laughs) it just doesn't really exist. There's a very different religious culture place to place. And you can do this uh, in other categories as well. And so what ends up happening is that sort of superficial common consumer culture papers over uh, real differences in, in the most important things that we believe. And those differences, those are fine. We can accommodate those differences if they're not also accompanied by an increasing amount of animosity, an increasing sense that the other side represents an existential threat to your point of view and to your values. And that, it's not the diversity, it's the animosity that is increasingly the problem. Isn't it more than that, though, David? Um we we've had a couple of shows where people have have spoken about the refutilization of of life particularly in america haven't the hasn't isn't america an example of the failure of the 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 the, the, the modern project to to unify to universalize and what we're seeing say for example with the Reemergence of hardline religious communities is a breakdown in this ontological unity. 
these communities view the world so profoundly differently that they're never going to be able to share a community. Their, 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 their disagreement is so profound in terms of values, politics, perhaps even the lack of politics, or am I exaggerating here? Well, you know, I think if we go back and we look um, at the founding of the United States of America, I think a lot of people sort of over, uh, we look at these religious differences that ran up and down the Eastern seaboard of the United States through modern eyes, which through modern eyes, these religious differences sort of seem minor or trivial. You can drive down a street in Nashville and you can see all of the major strands of Protestant faith right by a Catholic uh, church. And it's just normal, you know, the, the biggest conflict they have is traffic patterns on Sunday. And that just feels like a trivial difference. But if you look at the actual historical context of the American founding, those religious, different religious strains just fought the wars of religion, which mm. had been prior to, you know, the, the Napoleonic Wars and then World War I and World War II, some of the most catastrophic military conflicts in European history. And so we initially knit together a constitutional republic in spite of religious differences that had been catastrophically violent in the pretty recent past. And so we're kind of built from the ground up to uh, permit extremely different communities with extremely different values to grow up and flourish side by side. We're, we're built for that. The problem comes when, when, one or more of those communities begins to take the position that the other communities do not have and should not have a place in this land. And that's when people begin to feel a sense of existential threat, or maybe they perceive wrongly that others are seeking to wipe them out. And then that's when you begin, that's when you also have a sense of ex existential threat. This country is built in particular, and, and, and facilitated through the Bill of Rights for people with wildly different views to live together. Um, the problem is we're, we're having difficulty realizing that vision right now. Yeah, and David, you are an unashamed conservative. Uh, so you go back to the founders to, to figure this thing out. As you say, we, we uh, you are built, or you, I, you, you, you present America as a place which has been built to survive this division. You go back to Madison, you go back to the Federalist Papers number 10, and you argue mm -hmm. our nation should be a nation that sustains and nurtures an increased variety of parties and variety of sects, quoting Madison. Um, you argue that the Constitution then is a document designed to bring people together. Is that fair? I would say bring people together might be an overstatement. I would say it's a it's a document that is designed to accommodate a wide variety of different factions in the United States. But when you, um, it's one of the things that when I was reading your book, didn't Madison by faction mean political interest rather than uh, cultural community, or do you do you treat those in the same way? Well, I think that one flows from the other um, and one has traditionally flowed from the other, that when you have distinct different political communities are often flowing from distinct different cultures and distinct different religions. And so, you know, one of the things I think that what we have demonstrated in American history is that when we destabilize is when we deny 
the benefits of pluralism and the Bill of Rights to distinct American communities. When we restabilize is when we extend the blessings of liberty to different American communities. So, for example, uh, there was an inherent tension, for example, between the American reality and the principles of the American founding. Obviously, all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights was not a principle that was extended to too many American communities at the founding of the country. And that gap between the liberty, the, the aspiration of liberty and the reality, in many cases of oppression, created a tension in the system. In 1861, that tension was resolved violently from 1861 to 1865. It was again resolved uh, with violence in during the civil rights era. Nonviolent resistance was met with violence and then was met with an overwhelming federal ultimately an overwhelming federal legal response. But that tension between the, the social, the promise of the social compact of the Bill of Rights versus the reality of denying that social compact has been a long source of instability in, in the U.S. And my contention is that by restoring that social compact and by restoring confidence in that social compact, we can live across pretty immense differences in this country. And, pr and pretty and extremely different communities can thrive in this country so long as we um, forsake a desire to dominate and instead embrace an, a desire to accommodate. One of the things I got from your book, David, is I, I'm not convinced you believe in your own argument. I'm not saying you make it up, but I think you're you know, it, it reminds me of Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony when uh, he, he said, uh, I'm trying to smile. It's a symphony about smiling. And of course, he had Stalin's gun behind his head. I think you're trying to convince yourself about America. And I'm not sure that you actually believe it yourself. You, you begin your book with a quote from Rawls. How is it possible for there to exist over time a just and stable society of free and equal citizens who remain profoundly divided by reasonable religious, philosophical, and moral doctrines. But isn't it more than that? Hasn't America already essentially broken up? Your Tennessee, or my Berkeley, these are different worlds. And it's in everyone's interest, particularly conservatives, for America to fragment. The word balkanized um, perhaps is a euphemism. Perhaps it's not an insult. Perhaps America would be a richer, more diverse, more creative place if indeed it did fragment. What's so bad, particularly from a conservative point of view, of the breakup of America? Well, when you get to the actual break, so it depends on what, in what sense do we mean fragment. So one of the things that I talk about in the, in the book is much greater levels of local and, and, re, and local state regional autonomy, where, for example, right now, about 80% of Americans live in, in states where one party or the other is in absolute control of the state. And in other words, there's the one party control, so the governor mansion and both houses of the state legislature. But their ability to enact policies that reflect these political values of the community is, is limited by an increasingly large, increasingly powerful federal government. And so I do call for greater autonomy. Um, I do not call for breakup. And there's a couple of reasons why I do not call for breakup. One is, I think the fundamental social compact that is the aspirational ideal of the United States of America is one of the greatest political, cultural, moral developments in world history. This notion, the, the, the ideal of the 
Declaration of Independence operationalized first in the Bill of Rights, then in the Civil War Amendments, is an incredible statement of positive moral values in political society. Um, the idea that we're created equal, that we're endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights, and then the Bill of Rights operationalizing that mission statement. I think that's something that's uh, of immense historical value, immense value presently, and immense value in the future. And if we break up, there is no guarantee that all of these different polities that would emerge would even aspire to those kinds of values. In fact, they may, in the tension and the heat of disillusion, contradict those values, maybe even intentionally contradict those values. So I think the values themselves are of immense, these American values are of immense worth all on their own. And then the other thing is, um, you know, a lot of people who sort of take this really insular kind of um, view, it's fashionable, and especially in parts of the right now, to take a very uh, America-centered view of the world and sort of to say, let the, just let the world take care of itself without the influence of, uh, you know, American economic and, and military power, which has led to an awful lot of stability and great power relationships uh, over the last, you know, since 1945. And I say, be careful what you wish for, because a world that is left to its own devices is a world that is probably pretty quickly going to fall, fall into great power conflict again, that the old pathologies uh, will reemerge. And in ways that will not just harm the world, but will harm us as well. And so, um, yeah, I'm I'm a person who strongly believes in the positive influence of, you know, the American Republic on world affairs broadly. And so you remove that and A, you may not have a, a government or a series of governments that reflect the values we take for granted in a constitutional republic. And B, the world that emerges may not be a world that we would uh, prefer to live in. Does American nationalism need a reinvention? Are the culture wars today, which you find yourself in the middle of, quite literally sometimes, um, are they an attempt to redefine what it means to be an American in a, in a, in a, in a multicultural 21st century? Well, you know, what I, what I find is interesting is that there is any, you know, if you look at sort of a uh, remove ourselves from politics of, of Republican versus uh, Democrat for a moment, there still does exist a pretty broad consensus idea of, you know, what America is, what it means to be American. It's centered around not a necessarily a common religious faith, though some people would want it to be centered around a common, common religious faith, or even a particular common ideology, but some basic common American ideals, free speech, commitments to free speech, religious freedom, due process, sort of these basic constitutional ideals that I say in the book are the absolute foundation of the American social compact. And there's a, a lot of consensus around that. If you can strip people of the partisan back and forth and the partisan animosity. So I think we have the sort of the, the, the fundamental building blocks are still there. Uh, we still have a lot of consensus on the fundamental idea of America, but what we're having is it is getting clouded and muddied and confused by the overlay of partisan animosity and the overlay of the rise of illiberalism, both on the right, as we've seen during the Trump era, and on the left, which this illiberal movement, I think, is something that contradicts through these core found, uh, founding ideals. I talk about in the book how I found myself in the middle of debates on the right that I never thought I'd be in in my entire career over 
the virtue of the American founding itself, uh, the virtue of the Bill of Rights itself is under attack from quarters of the right, for example. And that is something that really is questioning the value of the American experiment. And, and that is something that I think is a, a movement that requires a determined opposition. You quote, as I said, rules at the beginning of the book, but he's a philosopher, not really a historical thinker. And, you know, his, his, his work is universal rather than focused on America. Uh, you also argue that, that Madison is the key figure in terms of um, defining the American Constitution and rights and community. But is there a, a 20th or a 21st century figure who you think epitomizes Americanness? Might it be Martin Luther King, for example, or somebody else who can somehow capture all these contradictions in a single figure, in a single series of writings, in a single life? Uh, no, well, you know, Martin Luther King, I think, is a key figure in reminding Americans that they wrote a promissory note for which an entire American community was overdue to cash in. And I think he was and in you know perhaps the indispensable figure of the 20th century in extending american promise and the 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 echo of his sort of moral and political witness it remains with us to this day but one of the one of the problems that i see is and i identify in the book is we currently do not we're not possessed with the greatest political class in the history of the United States. You're a member of it, David. Who, who, um, is there anybody else then? Somebody who may not be perfect, but at least provides a, a, um, a pointer. Well, you know, I think I mean, there, are, there are a variety of political figures, cultural figures who I think have demonstrated courage in this time, who have articulated a better way forward in this time, who have a commit demonstrated commitment to liberal values in this time. Hey, David, who are they? Oh, for example, on the Republican side, I think the one senator who, for the first time in the history of the United States, who broke ranks with his own party to advocate for the impeachment, the conviction of an impeached president, Mitt Romney, somebody who was vilified in 2012, for example. But when it came time to push, uh, you know, when push came to shove, stood up for the rule of law in the American Constitutional Republic. I think that's somebody on the right. I think that they're, you know, he's received a lot of criticism, but a got Romney on the right. What about on the left? You know, I think one of the interesting things uh, that that I found in, deeply encouraging, and and some of your listeners who are more on the left may not like this answer. But it is it, it has been very interesting to me that that Joe Biden emerged not just narrowly, but overwhelmingly from the Democratic pack by calling for a, a really, for lack of a better term, a kind of na national reconciliation, uh, a recentering and a reestablishing of American norms. And that aspect of his message, I think, is incredibly important. So we have Biden and, and, and Romney. Some people might think, well, those are both two old white guys. Anyone else? Uh, <laughs> because isn't that the problem, David? People will be saying, well, you know, this community, that community isn't represented. Any women? Can women inspire us, David, or are they the problem? <laughs> what on earth? Of course they can inspire us. But, 
you know, we have, you know, if I can sit here and say, you know, for example, if Amy Klobuchar had been the Democratic nominee, I think honestly, the country would probably be in an even better place. I think she would have been a more energetic defender of American values than Joe Biden has been. She was my preferred. I'm not a Democrat. I'm a conservative. She is would have been my preferred uh, contender to emerge from the Democratic primary. Uh, I think that she's somebody who connects with and would have connected with an awful lot of Americans. And yeah, she's she's on the a, a woman of the left, but she's a left liberal, small L liberal. And, and one of the core def- challenges of our time is the defense of the small L liberal order. And I think she would have been a very capable defender of it, more capable than Joe Biden. But she didn't emerge. Um, so I, we if we can combine Amy Klobuchar, Mitt Romney, and Joe Biden. Perhaps we have a model of American <laughs> identity in the 21st century. It'd be an interesting combination. I'm not quite sure what they would either look or sound like. Finally, David, uh, your book, Unite, uh, Divi- not United We Fall, uh, that was a Freudian, Divided We Fall, <laughs> important, having a huge, um, huge reaction. People... Uh, love it. Uh, some people disagree, but it's very provocative, very well written and very accessible. I strongly suggest everyone looks at it, particularly those people worrying about the future of America. Uh, as 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 I said earlier, you're in Tennessee. I'm in Berkeley in these strange times in October 2020 as we wait for this historic election. What else should people be reading? You know, a, a book written from somebody I res- uh, by somebody I respect a great deal, um, who also is very, very concerned about our polarization, is my friend Ezra Klein. His book "Why We're Polarized." It's interesting. We both have a very similar diagnosis of the problem. We both see a lot of the same cultural trends and are raising a similar kind of alarm. Uh, but he has different uh, prescriptions. Uh, whereas I call for greater local control and decentralization, he is wanting to beef up the ability of the federal government to uh, wield power and implement policy. And so I think we have very different uh, views of the prescription of a very similar problem that we both can see. And so, yeah, I would urge folks to read Why We're Polarized in addition to my book, Divided We Fall, and judge for yourself who do you think has uh, got the better, makes the better case. You've been listening to Keen On, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, If you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.